Welcome back for episode 45 in our study of the book of Revelation. We're excited to tell you about Breck's new book based on this podcast series. It's called The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation. Breck, people have so many questions about Revelation, about the end of the world and so forth. I know. Questions like, um, when will Jesus return again and what will happen? And when is the battle of Armageddon? And yep. What's that all about? And, right. and will the sun go dark and the moon turn to blood? What are the four horsemen, mm-hmm. right? Will, will the whole world be destroyed? What's going to happen during the millennium, etc., so forth, right? In my book, I've tried to research what prophets and scholars have said about these questions, and I call this book the bright and morning star because the central figure in the book is Jesus Christ and he is the bright and morning star as he himself introduces himself in the book of Revelation. He gives us light and hope and peace through all the trials that are to come. You can find the book easily on Amazon.com. Just type in the name Breck England, or the title, The Bright and Morning Star, and put in your order. It's available in paperback or on Kindle. And make sure to rate the book on Amazon and leave a positive review. This episode is called The New Jerusalem. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is teaching us about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint temple experience. In our last episode, we, we came to the veil, right, of the heavenly temple, where we met the Lord. And there we found out what it means to be, quote, encircled in the arms of his love. So we enter the presence of God through the veil. In the book of Revelation, this is described in chapter 21, where John sees, uh, quote, a new heaven and a new earth. It will be a celestialized earth which the celestial room in the temple symbolizes. Now, in ancient times, the people of Israel came up to the temple once every year to commemorate the day in Exodus when um, the children of Israel arrived at Mount Sinai. It was an annual holiday called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, because it occurred exactly seven weeks after Passover. And we know that the number seven signified completion, right? It was also called the Feast of Reaping because it was the end of the wheat harvest. And this feast was celebrated uh, the summer solstice, right, in the middle of the summer or midsummer day. And and throngs of people, they would dress all in white, by the way, and they carried baskets of wheat to offer at the temple. It signified bringing the fruits of their labors to God, which he commanded them to do in Deuteronomy um, 16, verses 9 through 11. It was part of the law of Moses to do this. Mm-hmm. So why the big celebration? What did it mean to the children of Israel? There's a lot of symbolism in this feast of reaping and gathering. Obviously, it represents the gathering of Israel, before the end of the world, right? The wheat and the tares by this time have been reaped and separated, right? Some to the lake of fire, some through the veil. And the redeemed children of God are the wheat. The tares go to the lake. 
of fire. They're burned. So this feast is the anniversary of when the Lord made his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, when he bound himself to Israel as, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's in Exodus 19 and 6. Now, in the same way, the saints who are redeemed will come up to the new Jerusalem in white robes, and they will bring their offering, which is their works, right, fruits of their labor, to receive exaltation and eternal life. Now, the purpose of the Father's plan will be attained at last. And the summer solstice was symbolic. It represented the day of the sun's greatest strength or the triumph of the Messiah. There's a lot of symbolism surrounding this feast of reaping, seems like. Yeah, and that's not all. The Jews refer to the Feast of Weeks as the day the bride, which is the nation of Israel, was brought to Mount Sinai to become betrothed to the bridegroom, who is Jehovah, right? Mm-hmm. And the ketubah, remember, what is a ketubah? Like a marriage contract. Yeah, yeah a marriage mm-hmm. contract was the Torah, or the Law of Moses. Mm. Okay? Of course, after the celestial room comes what? The ceiling room. The ceiling room. Right, right. Okay. Did the ancient Israelites understand all of the symbolism around the Feast of Weeks? Well, I don't know if they did. I'm not a mind reader. But, <laughs> but um, it was a big celebration. When Jews converged on the temple from nations all over the world, they had been scattered for so long that many of them didn't even understand Hebrew. They spoke languages like Greek or Latin or Egyptian or Syriac. The apostles of Jesus, if you remember, were gathered in the temple on the Feast of Weeks, Mm -hmm. a few days after the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. It was then that they had that outpouring of the Spirit and preached about the Savior in all the languages of the people who were there. Remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. And all those people were astounded. They said, these people are talking to us in our own language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's symbolism in that event, too. Because the gospel was preached, essentially, to all the world in many languages on that day. Now, Christians call it Feast of Weeks. They call it the Feast of Pentecost. Mm. And the whole event was a token of the final gathering of Israel. Pentecost, by the way, is Greek for um, 50, because it was 50 days after the... Passover. Mm, got okay. it. Yeah. The Feast of Weeks also reminded the Israelites of the Garden of Eden. For them, it was like returning to the Garden, sort of like uh, a foretaste of celestial glory. Uh, there's a fine Jewish scholar named Rachel Elior, and she says this about the Feast of Weeks, quote, In the priestly tradition, Shavuot was the holiday of oath and covenant associated with a sacred fixed time set in the heavens with the sacred incense originating in the Garden of Eden, which makes entry into the covenant possible, unquote. In the um, apocryphal book called The Testament of Dan, there is a prophecy that those who keep the covenant will enter into a heavenly garden. This is the quote. The saints shall refresh themselves in Eden. The righteous shall rejoice in the new Jerusalem, which shall be eternally for the glorification of God. So, in other words, the New Jerusalem and Eden are uh, types of each other. Okay, They're, it, It's going to be um, a garden-like atmosphere. Cool. 
And that takes us into the topic for this podcast, the New Jerusalem. Right. Now, when you hear the term New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, what do you think of? What do I think of? I think of Jackson County, Missouri, and uh, the literal gathering of the saints to go to Jackson County, Missouri. Now, that may be, that's just what I think at this point in time in my life. Let's get there. (laughs) Okay. Could you read for us Revelation 21, verse 1? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Yeah, no more sea. What does that mean? Right? Wow, that's crazy. I've never. That's, yeah. Wow, now, that's now cool. The, now the this is the final act of Revelation. Okay, of the play. The final act begins here. Oh, by the way, the ancients thought of the sea as an evil place. Okay, it was scary. They called it the lair of the chaos monsters. So John sees that it is. When he says it's no more sea, what he means is that it's been replaced okay, mm-hmm. yeah. by a sea of glass and fire where all things are manifest for the glory of the saints. That's according to the Doctrine and Covenants. 130. 130 here it says in verse 7, a sea of glass and fire. Okay. Now, uh, one scholar says this, a guy named uh, James Papandrea in a book called The Wedding of the Lamb. It's a very, very interesting book. He says this, quote, When the kingdom of God is fully revealed, creation comes full circle to the originally intended state of paradise. Mm-hmm. So we're going back to the Garden of Eden. Okay. 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 Only this time we get to stay there. Okay. Well, that's good. We'll uh, get cast yeah. out. Mm-hmm. The earth was decreated by the power of evil, and it's now recreated, okay, by the power of God in its Paradisiacal glory. I think mm. that's how you say that. Paradisiacal. Mm. Oh, that sounds paradisiacal. Or, or uh, paradisical. Or yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how you say that. Well, that's very Ever fancy. since I was in primary and learned the, you know, the uh, article of faith, it's been pronounced so many different ways. I'm not sure how to say yeah. it. But let's say paradisiacal. Yes, yes. So the celestial earth is like the Garden of Eden everywhere? Uh-huh. The celestial world is new fresh Hmm. it's a heavenly garden in the temple we learn that eden is the pattern of heaven did you know that oh no yeah very cool patterned after a place we used to know Hmm. okay that's cool president joseph f smith said this and this is a very interesting quote quote heaven was the prototype of this beautiful creation when it came from the hand of the creator unquote so what is a prototype? A version? Different yeah. version? Yeah. 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 It's an early version of yeah. something, right? Right, right. Right? When, when, when they design cars, for example, they'll create a prototype first, mm-hmm. test right. it, right? Mm-hmm. So heaven was the prototype of this. This is the prophet speaking. Heaven was the prototype of this beautiful creation. So when we look around and see the beauty of the earth, we are seeing what heaven is like. Beautiful. Book of Jubilees is an apocryphal book, um, very ancient. It was an extension of, um, it's sort of an enlarged version of Genesis. Okay. Book of Jubilees says that the Garden of Eden, quote, the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies and the dwelling of the Lord. So the Holy of Holies in the temple is supposed to represent heaven, the celestial garden where God presides. In the apocryphal book of Enoch, the first Enoch, 
there is a description of Enoch being endowed. Mm. Description of Enoch's endowment. He says, quote, I passed by the key holders and the guards of the gates into the paradise of Eden, where rest is prepared for the righteous. It is the third heaven. Isn't that cool? That's uh, Yeah, very cool. Yeah. He goes on to say, quote, The angel Michael carried me off, and I, Enoch, was in the heaven of heavens. And there I saw in the midst of that light a structure built of crystal, and between the crystals, tongues of living fire. Unquote. It sounds to me like he's going into the celestial room and looking at the chandelier. Oh, yeah, right? that's interesting. Because there's always a beautiful chandelier, right, in, in the, the celestial room. Yeah. Why? Mm. Why have a big, beautiful chandelier in the Temple of Bountiful that I go to? Mm-hmm. There's this enormous Czech crystal chandelier, and I sometimes I just sit and just stare at it. It is so... So beautiful. So beautiful, yeah. and, and I end up being kind of blinded, okay, after mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. The superb crystal chandeliers in the temple, in the celestial room, reminds us of this. Uh, I, I believe that's what the chandelier is supposed to represent, the crystal beauty of um, God's presence, of um, the heavenly holy of holies, if you will. And then Enoch then sees the resurrected saints passing into the celestial world. And this is what he says, quote, Adam, together with all the ancestors, he will bring them in there so that they may be filled with joy and riches that cannot be measured and joy and happiness and eternal light and life, unquote. I really love these ancient books of Enoch that were literally dug out of the desert, <laughs> yeah. you know, not long ago, yeah, yeah. 1940s, okay. Yeah. So you're saying that in this book of Enoch, he's describing his endowment. Well, as I read it, it sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. So here we are in a celestialized earth, and John has another remarkable vision. Could you um, read for us Revelation 21, uh, verses 10 and 11? Sure. And I saw that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And in her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. That's a beautiful image. Now now that the earth is celestialized and transformed into a garden-like like temple, this colossal holy of holies comes down, okay? Mm-hmm. as the dwelling place of the Father. It is a giant cube that fills the sky. Could you read chapter 21, verse 60? The city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. It is a cube. Why cube? Ancient people thought of the cube as a perfect shape. The New Testament scholar Adela Yarbrough Collins writes this, quote, The perfection of the New Jerusalem is brought out vividly by its presentation as a cube in shape. Uh, it symbolizes the structure of the universe. Okay? The cube, she says this, The cube has traditionally been 
a symbol of completeness. The new city is at perfect unity with itself. It is all in harmonious proportion, unquote. Now, although the, the New Jerusalem is huge, I mean, it's enormous. It's, it's larger to an enormous degree, okay? Its cubicle shape suggests that it plays the role of the Holy of Holies of the Temple of Solomon. Uh-huh. Uh, and this, this uh, cube city, this cube, cubicle city, is vast. It's, uh, if you do the math, it's about two and a half billion cubic miles in area, in volume. Oh my okay. gosh. All that's, right. That's big. Okay. Now, ancient temples typically had a holy of holies, right? Right. right. Uh, temple goers in those days would pass through spaces representing increasing degrees of holiness. At the heart of the temple, they'd find the dwelling place of God, and it was always a cube shaped inner shrine. I have seen this in Egyptian temples. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the westernmost end, of Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies formed a perfect cube. It was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was a cube. Again, I was telling you about the Egyptian temple of Karnak in Egypt. Priests would approach the supreme god Amun, or Amon in our scriptures, along an avenue of statues of rams that represented um, Amun in the form of the constellation Aries. Okay. And the the priest would then cross a great open courtyard, which represented the universe, the cosmos, okay? And then they would go into a monumental garden room. The technical term for it is the hypostyle hall. I have to describe this place to you. The hypostyle hall is, it's, it's almost unbelievable, okay? It's this gigantic room. that used to have a roof over it. The roof is gone now. It's full of pillars that are like, 80 feet high. Wow. And these pillars are all painted, but they're not just columns. They're carved in the shape of the lotus plant, okay, which was sacred to the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. So what we're in, we're in the middle of a garden. Oh, okay. okay. So the hypostyle hall in the Temple of Karnak was the garden room, okay? So they would do rituals there, and then they'd pass through that hall into a cube-shaped chamber. And I have been in it, and I've seen it. It is a cube, and it's the chamber of Amun. This is where the god resided. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the cube shape okay, was really important to ancient temples. Uh, in Persia, temples were usually built in the shape of a cube. I have seen those. The Zoroastrian temples are, are cubical. Mm-hmm. And the Muslims, when they go to Mecca, what they pray in a circle around the Kaaba, which is just the Arabic word for the cube mm. okay, that they believe was built by Abraham. Mm. So their temple is literally a cube. Mm. And millions of Muslims go there every year to form a circle around it and pray. Okay? Right. So you say this cube that comes down out of heaven is 2.5 billion cubic miles in volume. Yes. Wow. Okay. That's big. Yeah. Now, if the New Jerusalem came down from heaven and sat flat on the earth, well, it would squish the earth, okay, it, which it, it couldn't because the earth is a sphere, okay? It won't sit flat anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it would cover about 196 million square miles. Now, here's an interesting fact. 
the surface of the Earth is about 196 million square miles. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. So the area of the cube from heaven is the same size as the Earth's surface. That's got to be relevant and very important. Well, I think so. And I think it's kind of amazing. I think it signifies that the cube that comes down out of heaven is a symbol for the new celestialized earth and that the whole earth will be holy like a new Jerusalem. Okay. When they looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a scroll that they called the New Jerusalem Scroll. And on this scroll, a Holy of Holies is described. Okay. This Holy of Holies occupies the northern 40% of the city of New Jerusalem. Okay. So now let's look at the building itself. Could you read Revelation 21, verses 12, 13, and 14? It had a wall, great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Interesting description. No, Very no. interesting, yeah. Now, John is, is getting into astronomy here. You remember that Israel had 12 sons, right? Jacob right. Mm -hmm. had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. Mm -hmm. And maybe you remember that Joseph had a vision mm -hmm. of the sons of Israel, he and his brothers, okay? Right. As 12 stars. That's in Genesis. Well, in Jewish lore, these 12 sons were symbolized by the 12 signs of the zodiac, all right? Each one of the sons was a sign of the zodiac. A famous Bible scholar named Austin Farrer, he has this to say, quote, The New Jerusalem embraces the whole zodiac. The blessings of Jacob on the 12 tribes make up a zodiac poem. This is the zodiac square, and the square makes the four points of the compass, and the equinoxes and solstices stand out Clearly, unquote. So what does all that mean? Well, it must mean that New Jerusalem is a square that covers the four corners of the earth. And the zodiac is a circle the sun follows in the sky. So it's also a circle. How can it be both a square and a circle? Yeah, right. <laughs> a little confusing here. Right. Yeah. Well, that's part of the symbolism. Right, right. The ancients um, believed that both the square and the circle represented perfection. Mm, They're both okay. images of perfection. So they were very unhappy about one thing. And this is something that really bothered them, ancients. They could not draw a square and a circle that would equal each other in area. I mean, who cares, right? But, right, but right. they cared a lot. Right, they they right. couldn't do it. Right. Uh, mathematicians have been stumped by this problem ever since the Greeks. It's called, it's called squaring the circle. And it can't be done, okay? But it's very symbolic. John, John I think, is making an, uh, a very interesting comparison here. He's saying the New Jerusalem is both a perfect sphere 
and a perfect square, the sort of thing that can't exist, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. In the telestial world, it is a symbol of perfection. Okay, Okay. very cool. At least that's, that's kind of my wild theory about this. Now, let's talk about the 12 gates. The 12 gates of the holy city are the signs of the zodiac, three facing each direction, right? Mm -hmm. Bearing the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. In 2125, it tells us these gates are never shut. Now, why would that be? Well, there was a legend among the Jews that uh, Abraham had a tent. And uh, this tent had four sides, okay? And there was a door in each of the four sides of Abraham's tent. And because Abraham was hospitable, he never closed the doors of his tent. Everyone was welcome. So they, they, they thought of it as like the house of our father Abraham. Okay. Our Heavenly Father's house is also open on all four sides mm. to receive with loving kindness everyone who will come. I think mm. it's a beautiful image. Yeah, that is a beautiful image. Okay, now it goes on to say, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, right? Mm -hmm. Now, these foundations are garnished with all manner of precious stones. Why? Well, the stones that are described, the jewels are, that are described here, are the same ones that, are, were, that were in the high priest's breastplate. Now, the high priest of Israel had a breastplate that had 12 stones in it, 12 jewels. Mm -hmm. And the first stone is jasper, clear as crystal, says John, right? Which is sort of the presiding color of the entire city. It represents the crystal sea. I mean, the symbolism is very complicated here, but it's all really cool to meditate on it, okay? The 12 precious stones. The fact that they also re represent the 12 signs of the zodiac. What, why is that important to know? Well, it indicates that the authority of the priesthood, the high priest, was universal, right? It covers the universe. Okay, let's, let's sum up. I'm, I'm getting a little complicated here. Let's sum up. The city is figurative, right? Mm -hmm. The two and a half billion cubic mile city is clearly a polyvalent symbol, mm -hmm. right? Its gates and foundations are actually people. Mm. The, the apostles and the uh, 12 tribes, the redeemed of the 12 tribes. And another reason we know it's figurative is that Doctrine and Covenants 45, if you read like through 63 to 75 and Doctrine and Covenants 45 tells us that the New Jerusalem will be, as you said earlier today, a city built by the saints on the American continent. As Article of Faith 10 tells us, this, the place where the saints will gather and Christ will personally reign with them. And Joseph Smith actually drew a map of the New Jerusalem in June of 1833, he drew a map of it, and you can see it in the Joseph Smith papers online if you look. It's one mile square, of course, <laughs> okay? And it is oriented to the four points of the compass, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's got four sides, north, south, east, and west, with the orientation to the north, okay? And that's the plan for the real New Jerusalem. The Book of Mormon says, quote, Then cometh the New Jerusalem, and blessed are they who dwell therein. For it is they whose garments are white through the blood of the Lamb, fulfilling the covenant God made with 
Abraham, uh, Ether chapter 3, verse 10. So our story ends here? No. <laughs> all, that, all that's come up to this point is just preparation. Uh, there's one more temple ordinance to take care of. And that's the most important ordinance of all. The new celestial world is going to be like a holy of holies, a very holy place, which is made ready for conducting the crowning ordinance of sealing. We are now ready for the wedding of the Lamb. And now John the Revelator hears, quote, the voice of a great multitude singing, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And in our next episode, we're going to attend that wedding as John the Revelator describes it. I love weddings. <laughs>